Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Today we will be discussing what Lupin's childhood must have been like, why Dumbledore came up with the plan he did for Lupin's transformations, and mean teen Sirius. So chapter starts mid-scene, as kind of all these chapters at the end do. Sirius is determined to kill Peter Pettigrew slash Scabbers, um, but Lupin insists that everyone, the trio, but especially Ron, who's been living with Scabbers, has a right to know the real story. Hermione tries to insist logically that it's not possible for Peter Pettigrew to be Scabbers because Animagi have to be registered with the Ministry of Magic. Lupin then backs up a little bit and explains about his experience as a werewolf, that he was bitten as a child before there was Wolfsbane Potion invented, and um, that Dumbledore had come up with a plan for him to be able to go to Hogwarts and transform safely. And that plan involved planting the Whomping Willow over the entrance to a tunnel that went to the Shrieking Shack, although at the time it was probably just called that old building on the hill there which uh, is isolated from the town and thus would be safe for Lupin to transform in. Then later on, I think they say in their fifth year, um, James, uh, Sirius, and Peter all succeed in, cr- in making themselves Animagi, and they start joining in on his uh, monthly transformations. They also create the Marauder's Map together, and Lupin reveals that the four of them had uh, the pen names of Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Lupin then admits that he hesitated this year to tell Dumbledore about Sirius possibly getting in as a dog um, because that would mean revealing that he had betrayed Dumbledore's trust many years ago as a student by having his friends do this illegally and, you know, risk their lives and having, you know, all this risk that he put himself through. Then Lupin explains the trick that he, well, not he, that his friends played on Snape Um, where Snape was to follow Lupin into the tunnel um, and go to the Shrieking Shack, and there he would learn the secret that Lupin was hiding for so long. Um, And Snape apparently glimpsed Lupin at the end of the tunnel, uh, but was turned back by James Potter before he actually got there. At the end of this chapter, Snape suddenly appears in the room and takes off the invisibility cloak. So this is really the Lupin chapter. We hear all about his whole backstory growing up as a werewolf. So I'm kind of curious what you think like about this explanation of his life to this point. Um, the fact that we know from later on that it was Fenrir Greyback was the werewolf that bit him. Um, but we don't know anything about like how that happened. Mm-hmm. Not really. Yeah, you're right. We find out that it was Greyback that's which a little bit randomly later on um because Greyback becomes a character but we don't know the like in what world would they encounter each other how and why would he do this and um you know we don't know a lot about how common werewolves are if this is something that you know there used to be a lot more but now there aren't i mean we know that Voldemort uses them as a weapon so you know it's assumed that maybe they're not around very much anymore now that he's not in power. Um, but there's just a lot of questions about, first of all, how that came to be, and then what 
it was like? Like, what kind of resources did his family have? Um, was he able to do anything normally? He obviously went to Hogwarts because of Dumbledore, but there's a lot of factors here. Yeah, so there's probably a lot we could talk about. Um, just to start with, I was remembering that we do hear a little bit more from Lupin about when he was bitten, and I think he said two things that I remember. He said that, um, one, Greyback always bit people for personal reasons, mm. or like because he wanted it to be fun. Like it, it, and in this case, it was out of revenge. Lupin says, "My my father offended him somehow." Mm. And then the other thing Lupin said is he positions himself nearby his intended victim mm. because he you know, and then and then just like lets himself transform into the werewolf, mm-hmm. um, so that like the werewolf will just go off and kill the the person that he was targeting. Right. So that was um, Lupin's experience too, and I think he also said. That, like, rather than, like, ra- like killing him or something, Greyback seems to have chosen to just make Lupin into a werewolf. Um, right. Which I think, I mean, what that leads me to is, obviously, his life has been pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, except, yeah. you know, except for his years at Hogwarts, which were right. probably, to him, the best years of his life. Real friends, gets treated like a normal student, you know. Um, but I- I'm sure growing up was awful after being turned into a werewolf. It seems like he didn't have much money i don't think his family had a lot of resources and obviously he wouldn't have been allowed to associate with any other wizards or make friends or anything like that right right um so i don't know there's there's a lot we could speculate about you said but i just think it's interesting and i would i would love like you know to read that story about what lupin's growing up was like yeah well um the other thing that i think we can mention is that according to rowling herself Lupin's werewolf curse is supposed to be some kind of a metaphor for AIDS. Right, right. And how people with AIDS for a very long time and till, still to some extent are, are shunned by society. Um, they're seen as like dangerous or uncouth or whatever. And there was no treatment uh, for a really long right. time. Right, and there was no treatment for a long time. So yeah, it obviously has some similarities to lycanthropy uh, because you get shunned there's no cure it's manageable it it can be treated like it can be treated but usually not cured and well it's interesting like i wonder if with wolfsbane potion which it seems like is pretty much true um or maybe something a little bit different than that that it's similar to you know undetectable hiv so basically that um if you're constantly taking Wolfsbane Potion and if it's been a certain number of years that this kind of has built up in your system, um, I wonder if, like, you even, you know, like, it's it's like you could technically still transform, but a lot would have to happen to trigger that. Just, like, when people are undetectable with HIV and they don't, they test with the virus not in their blood, it's, they could technically, um it could technically get worse depending on their immune system, but it's extremely unlikely. So I wonder if, you know, something like now, and if we think about like modern times, Wolfsbane could Mm -hmm. actually make that so that werewolves, even if they are a bit, are kind of harmless. Yeah. And to abuse the metaphor, you know, I wonder whether um, wizards are trying to develop better versions of the Wolfsbane potion. Yeah. You know, and, and to try to get something like a cure rather than just a treatment. 
Yeah, because this still does seem like the early kind of versions of it. Like, uh, yeah, they said Lupin's it was recently very, invented. And Lupin's very affected by it. Like, he's still, like, not around a lot. Like, he still kind of takes some time off. Um, but only because the- he is in wolf form and he doesn't want to scare anybody. Right. He says that he's in full control of his mental faculties as long as he drinks it. But he's Right, but I mean, it's still like, it, you know, it's like a... I don't know, I just think of that as, like, a side effect. Like, you still look like the wolf, so you can't go somewhere. Yeah, and like AIDS, it's also a very visual disease. hmm So, yeah, I think they do have a lot of similarities. I mean, people give J.K. Rowling uh, crap sometimes for, like, posting these kinds of opinions because they say things like, well, just have that representation in your books anyway. Um, but J.K. Rowling's not writing a story about, like, human diseases, so... I think it makes a lot more sense to write about it in metaphor, and explaining that overtly is fine as long as it makes sense. Yeah, and you know we yeah we do not consider random things J.K. Rowling says to be canon. Um, we want to be this isn't a, make this, that clear. Yeah, but th- but this, this is, is something that has been uh, brought up long ago. Like this was known when before while the series was still going on that she discussed this ad. And, uh, this was clearly a metaphor, and it makes sense, and I think it's a good one. Um, and I think it's one that, you know, it is a very interesting, whether kids understand the metaphor or not, I think it's a really cool concept to have of, like, here's someone who's sick, but they are ashamed about it because people are scared of them. Yeah. And um, we want to, you know, help them and know that they're good people. Yes. Yeah. Um, and 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 my the point that I just wanted to make was that it's not possible for the explanation of a literary device to be in contradiction with canon. And most of the things that I have a problem with are just like statements of facts that contradict canon and, Mm -hmm. and saying, Oh, well, like I wrote Lupin with the intent of having a metaphor for AIDS and being able to talk about AIDS in a social Mm -hmm. context. Okay. So bringing Lupin's character back to the present moment of the chapter, um, why does he say in, in his description, he kind of trails off at one point, and I think he's talking about in general of like, oh, um, you know, the, the consequences of him being a werewolf and having his friends um, be animagi, but why does he say specifically, if I hadn't been so foolhardy, um, I don't know, I was just thinking about that, like, what is he blaming himself specifically for? Um, yeah, I don't... At I don't know. Point? It's pretty ambiguous. I think on my first couple reads when I was a child, I read it as like allowing myself to get bitten, which is kind of an interesting. That's way ki- of that's what I was thinking. That's it. my original thought, kind of back to his his backstory. I was like, oh, what did you do to get yourself? Yeah, but yeah, clearly it had nothing to do with him. It's not his fault. That's kind of part of the point. Um, but I think in later readings, I've read it as betraying Dumbledore's trust because he like most other wizards considers Dumbledore to be the greatest of them mm-hmm. um and he feels like a failure because he has never mustered up the courage to tell Dumbledore about how he led all of his friends to break the rules constantly right and never told anybody about it um because it put them at great risk mm-hmm. and Dumbledore would have been really disappointed in that and then also because he hadn't been able to talk to Dumbledore about this all year, even though I'm sure deep down inside, he thought that maybe Sirius was using his dog form to get into the castle. Right, right. Which he was. 
So as a reader, you know, having um, read this multiple times before, when I'm going through this again, knowing the consequences of what happened and, and towards the end of this book and later in the chapter, um, I feel just a lot of tension and anxiety. Like, I feel like I'm, like, serious in this chapter because I'm, like, wanting to kill him. I'm like, he's going to get away. You know, I'm having that kind of feeling of, like, let's just kill him first and we can talk about this later and then this wouldn't have <laughs> happened, which is what he wants to do. But um, obviously that's not where the reader is because we want to hear the story as a first-time reader and they're not thinking that this is urgent. So, um, I don't know. I, I just found myself feeling very anxious but serious there. Yeah, uh me too. <laughs> I think it's it's very clear, like, in hindsight that the amount of grief Pettigrew causes through his actions right after this book is, like, ob- it's obviously better if we just kill him right now. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, like, the way that I feel a lot of the time when I revisit movies that I've seen before or books that I've read before is I find myself in that pivotal chapter just, like, racked with, I don't know exactly what emotion, it's not quite anxiety, but just, like, why can't they just do this thing yeah. differently? And then everything would be fine. Right. You know? Right. And it's so tempting to just like, I don't know, have that sort of bottled frustration whenever I'm reading a book for like the second time or third time. It'd be If there was one pivotal moment to just be like, Ugh. right. Right. So speaking of, um, you know, Lupin's plan and his childhood and how it was at Hogwarts, I was thinking in general, like, what a weird plan for Dumbledore to make. Like, what a very specific plan that is something that you can kind of tell, I feel like, is, um, you know, written backwards or, like, she's written this to <laughs> fill. Like, I don't think she knew about the Whomping Willow and, like, what it was exactly for right. um, when she wrote that chapter. So I think it's interesting that... Um, she's kind of making up this story because it seems like a very weird plan. It's like, could there have been some sort of easier, more magic-specific plan? You you would think that it would be like, all right, go out onto the grounds, like, sneak out, click a knot on this crazy tree that we're going to make that's going to, like, be violent to everyone, and then, uh, like, go inside this shack and, like, it'll just be cool. Like, it seems like a bad plan. No, it's it's really weird. And and as you were saying that, I was imagining, because... Originally, Rowling wrote the Whomping Willow as a plot device for Chamber of Secrets for the to car. to make Ron and Harry crash land yeah. and then the car to flee into the Forbidden Forest. Um, and then now it's being reused, which is really cool. And I think this is actually an excellent example of J.K. Rowling has this tendency to over-explain things or to like go back later and give something an explanation where previously it was just one of those things that exist in fantasy worlds and we don't need to know about what what it's there for um but in this case she goes back and adds like a whole backstory for the whomping willow and like why it was planted at hogwarts and uh and and how long it's been there because as snape says in chamber of secrets the whomping willow has been on the ground since before you were born Mm -hmm. and so Snape remembers that because it was planted the year that Snape started Hogwarts. Right, right, right. So anyway, I just think that that's like really cool. No, to it reuse. is cool. But it's really cool. Yeah, you're right. What a weird plan. I I was just thinking like they hid the Sorcerer's Stone in a giant underground chamber like a mile below the school. Yeah. Did that chamber already exist? Because like maybe you just throw the werewolf down there. I don't know. Somewhere that or like somewhere more Where comfortable there's, like, for him. Maybe no, no thing that he can harm. Like right. in a like you know sealed large underground chamber for like a couple days, and then he gets back out. Or like I feel like they could make some like invisible magical dome uh, like on the on the grounds for that he could like you know hide in. Like it just seems like 
I mean, I know magic is like there's rules and it's not unlimited. Did you see an invisible magical dome? Yeah. I mean, that'd be cool, but I don't think they have that really. Well, I feel like they could have that, but either way, I think like again, like wizard it's not research, very magical. Get, get into developing these inventions yeah, that we yeah, need. We need them. Yeah, I mean, part of the thing was that they wanted to like keep everybody else from finding out that Lupin was a werewolf. Right. So I think a lot of it was, like, the secrecy of it. But still, I mean, even this plan obviously had a huge flaw, which is, like, what if someone sees him going there every month and, they f- and, and follows him? Yeah, <laughs> right. And, I mean, okay, so I know we're getting down to, to this, but I, I think, you know, the prank, like, I think we really need to dive into this prank uh, okay. that happened because I sort of forgot about this, to be honest. Like, I forgot that this that specific thing was, like, why, you know, Snape hated the group of them. I mean, he hated them for other reasons, but I forgot that that was, like, a major point. I think I just thought that they were, like, making fun of him and he didn't like them. So this prank is, like, really kind of screwed up. And yeah. I don't, it like, like, it makes me feel, even though, like, this is, you know, the beginning of Sirius and I do love the character of Sirius, I'm like... It kind of makes me hate him in this moment because I'm like, why would you like this kid is obviously beneath you in, you know, power and popularity and stuff at the school. And like, it's just like this poor little like kid that nobody likes. And maybe he's annoying and rude to you, but he has no power. Like you have the power in the situation. And the fact that you would be like, hey, like, come here, like, come look at this and like drag him in there to like see a terrifying creature that is, like, very threatening because it's basically, like, you know, we can hurt you um, as well. It's, like, awful. And I don't like Sirius for this. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty indefensible. Um, and I won't try to defend it. Obviously, horrible to do because he essentially was trying to engineer a situation in which, in which Snape would get himself killed mm-hmm. through no direct fault of Sirius. I think he, like, um, he let it slip that... If Snape just followed Remus down, mm-hmm. then he would find out what was where he was going every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Snape, obviously curious, would just go, and it would be his own fault for getting right. himself killed. But like that's devious, mm-hmm. you know. That's like Slytherin level of like plotting and uh, trying to trying to make bad stuff happen to people. But in fairness to Sirius, it's not an excuse. But in fairness, they had there had been escalating bullying pranking violence between Snape and his Death Eater cronies and uh, and the Marauders, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, and this was definitely later on in their school life because they only managed to become Animagi in the fifth year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that uh, they, it would happen after that time. Right, right. Um, so, you know, clearly a feud that had been going on for a really long time mm-hmm. and it just got out of control. But that doesn't make it okay what Sirius yeah. did. I'm just saying, like, Snape was doing bad shit to them, too. It's not... No, he was. He was. I guess I still feel like he had... He was in a position, like, lower than them. But I don't know. I think it'll be... I do... I'm very interested in Sirius's character as we go throughout the series because I think even though I love Sirius, like, I don't think of him as this very, like, sort of pure, like, figure. Um in yeah. in the series and I think it could be interesting to kind of examine him as this kind of you know he's like kind of an asshole like teen and adult but he was very close to James who was also popular and they were genuinely good friends and 
kind people, but that they might have been kind of those kind of people that are, you know, obnoxious, kind of, like, popular teen boys. Self-centered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Agreed. But honestly, I think this is pretty realistic um, British boarding school style fiction. Yeah, that's true. And, and like this escalating feud thing until like it gets out of control and somebody gets hurt. Like, yeah. Plus, this has the whole political backdrop of uh, there's literally a fascist trying to take over the world. Mm -hmm. And one quarter of the school is like totally happy with that, planning on joining Mm -hmm. the Gestapo as soon as they graduate. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think Sirius is not totally wrong That's to be true. like, hey, we need to start really like, you know, taking these guys down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if like direct violence is the way to do that, but certainly like these are people that are about to literally declare war on the rest of you as soon yeah. as they leave school. That's really, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that aspect. And when you said like, oh, British boarding school, like something just flipped in my mind. I, like, I've never really thought about this as a boarding school like book, but yeah, it is. but it totally is. And it's very, yeah, similar stuff anyway that happens. So that's, yeah, that's a cool way to think about it. And in some ways it's like a play on the British boarding school thing. Like, I remember talking about this once that Harry Potter is this idea, like, okay, what about British boarding school novel, but it's in a universe where everyone at the school is wizards, mm-hmm. you know? And that's kind of, like, the whole idea of the book. So we, we touched on this briefly, that it took three years for um, a serious James and Peter to turn into ad- and Magi to learn how to do that. And, you know, they mentioned that it was really hard and that they were really smart students. But I also just thought it was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, so they're, like, Hermione-level smart? Like, they're, like... <laughs> I, I just feel like I don't know if I 100% buy it that they were that, like, as smart as they would need to be to do something that's extremely hard that, like, Hermione would probably also take three years to do. Yeah, well, I mean, we know that James and Sirius were some of the best students in the school. That gets talked about a fair amount. They were they were like Fred and George X Hermione level. Yeah, I mean they weren't like nerdy, but they were just like, I think they were kind of the kind of people that are like magic is awesome. Let's learn everything we can about how to be awesome at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Which I feel like anybody at a wizard's boarding school should be, by the way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, they were they were very very talented and and famous for that. Um, and if we believe that they learned about Animagi and Transfiguration class at the same time that Harry and company learned about it, which is at the beginning of this year, their third year, mm-hmm. then uh, them managing it in their fifth year means that it took them roughly three years. To yeah. Do it. Okay. So it was a long process even for them. Like right. Harry learns how to do a Patronus in his third year. Imagine Harry fifth year being like, all right, now I'm going to turn into a, an owl. Right. Whenever I want, you know, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And so, speaking of them as the group of Animagi, do we think that Dumbledore really didn't know about them? I mean, I, I find it really hard to believe because, you know, we find out in various books pretty much all the time that Dumbledore, like, always knows the shit that they're trying to do. Yeah, he's presented as all-seeing, for sure. And that he, like, is like, I know you've been sneaking out, I know you've been going to this floor, like, I know you've been to the forest. Like, he knows everything. And so, I feel like especially, like, he was probably trying to monitor in some way, like, how Lupin was doing and making sure it was okay. He was the only one that knew about the clan. Yeah. So, I would expect that he was, like, interesting, here's these animals. (laughs) That's one of those things that 
just does not make any sense. And I feel like there's really no way to explain it. But maybe he thought it was fun. I mean, that's because what I'm wondering, which also happens a lot with Dumbledore, is like if he was like, all right, this is like really not okay, but like he was going to somehow like monitor it and try to make sure they weren't like hurting anyone. No, but they, he clearly be- doesn't know because he never considers or brings up to anybody that Sirius is an Animagus this year. That's true. And if he knew that, I'm sure that he would have told everybody who was involved yeah. in the security, like, be on the lookout for a dog. Right. That's true. Because Dumbledore doesn't like the Dementors, but he's also not going to obstruct justice in this case. Like, right, when, he, when thinks... he still thinks that Sirius is guilty, yeah. obviously he's going to try to protect his students. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But it just seems like something Dumbledore would kind of know. It you does know? seem like that, but I don't think it's possible for him to know. So, in this case, I think it's just, like... One of those things that's like, okay, well, the story doesn't really work if he knows. Yeah, so, so we won't, right. So we won't let him know. That's fair. Um, but yeah, I mean, it also gives Lupin great character moments for being so regretful about not telling him, as we've said. So one thing I wanted to look at this chapter is that we get the revelation this chapter that Pettigrew and not Sirius was responsible for Harry's parents' deaths. Um, but it's interesting, I think, to look at how each of our characters ron harry and hermione respond to that information because we don't get the proof this chapter we just get the the act like the fact of it so without the proof our characters do react really differently to that information i think for very disparate reasons but that's worth talking about yeah no i think you're really right um so ron is the one who I think is the most compelling here because he has to now accept that he's been living with this man and um, that is really creepy and upsetting and he thinks it's his pet. And so I think that he's kind of in some denial of like, I really can't accept this right now because that's too much. But I think he, you know, I think he's like willing to listen and starting to believe, but still like, I'm very wary. I'm not sure about this. And I just really need this to not be true because I'm freaked out. Yeah, definitely. And I think Hermione, her reaction is very telling as well. It's to kind of like ask questions and to needle at Lupin. She kind of uses logic. She uses logic, but she also, again, we've talked about how she puts so much faith in authority. Yeah. She says outright, like, it's not possible for the others to be Animagi because the ministry keeps tabs on all Animagi. Right. It's, and and there's yeah. a registry and you have to register. And, Lu- and Hermione is just like completely bought into this idea that the ministry really is like all seeing, all powerful. Right. And Lupin is just like, well, did it ever occur to you that you could be an unregistered animagus and just never tell anybody? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I've ever heard of people breaking that. the rules. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it seems like something that she's, this is like her still being pretty naive about that stuff. Yeah. And then with Harry, you know, he's still so stuck in this. Sirius is guilty mode and he has so much rage and and anger directed at Sirius um I think he reacts the most emotionally because he's just kind of like too angry to like believe Lupin at first he's he's like it's gonna take some like evidence like my mind's been made up for a while now like if you want to sway me out of that you're gonna have to present me some evidence Mm -hmm. interestingly though and we can talk a little bit more about this next chapter maybe but uh, it eventually is the fact that S- Snape disagrees with everything that Lupin and Sirius are saying. Mm-hmm. And that Harry knows that one or two of the things that they have said are, like, factually accurate, and he knows that. But since Snape, like, completely refuses to listen to them, Harry kind of goes like, oh, wait, no, I agree with them now. 
Yeah, because he's, I mean? so he's so anti-Snape. Like, anti-Snape. Yeah, exactly. That, like, Snape being against something is enough evidence to Harry that that thing is right. Right. Which is pretty stupid of Harry, which, like, we know yeah, Harry is stupid. But it's, like, I, I, I don't feel like at this point, even though Harry still kind of feels like Snape's out to get him, like, they should know at this point that, like, Snape has never been intentionally trying to, like, harm them physically. And also that you know, he has done some things to be helpful kind of behind the scenes. So I wonder, um, you know, why he wouldn't be like, okay, I don't like this guy, but he is a professor at this school who is possibly the only human that could save us right now from the literal escaped serial killer. So possibly (laughs) we should, like, listen to him and at least follow him out of the shack with his wand. Like, it's, it's very dumb, but he is so, like... Obviously, of course, he turns out to be right, but also, like, Snape would also be right. Snape wasn't going to kill him, I don't think. I think he was going to turn him over to the Dementors. Yeah, and then they were going to kill him. <laughs> Who? The Dementors. Oh, yeah, no, I, I meant Snape, sorry. Um, yeah, so the Dementors were going to kill Sirius, but I mean, he wasn't going to, like, murder them, him right there. But he would have still taken the trio back to the castle and not harmed them. Like, they would have physically still been fine. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't going to actually hurt them. It was like, he would have also taken them to safety. It's just, like, Sirius, you know, would have still been killed. But it's just, I don't know. It's kind of dumb. I mean, I think think Harry is just so opposed to Snape that he doesn't even see that that is clearly the safer option. He also doesn't really think in terms of, like, what's the safest thing for me to do. Which is part of his problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it doesn't even occur to him that, like, if Snape is right, on the off chance that Snape is right, like, he's absolutely doing the right thing. And I think we can't also, you know, back to, like, kind of how Harry's thinking about it, like, we can't also discount the fact that, like, Harry's never had, um, you know, he didn't know that Lupin was, like, as close friends with his dad as he was, and Sirius obviously is, and now, like, another friend is about to appear, basically. Like, he is getting as close as he ever has to his parents. He's like, these were my parents' friends. They were, like, best animals together. They were, like, two best young. Best animals. <laughs> I was gonna say best friends, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, they all became best friends and did all this, this these things together, and they... And Sirius and Lupin actually knew his mother as well, so... I think that Harry's actually really intrigued by the fact that he's encountering, you know, friends of his parents that are really close and he wants to figure out more about what happened, whether this is the truth or a lie. I think he just wants to hear more about them and things that they did. So I I made a comment about the um, jealous of James comment. So this is what... Um, this is what Snape is explaining. I mean, this is what Lupin is explaining about Snape to uh, Harry and Ron and Hermione right before Snape comes in, which we don't know he's there yet. So, um, basically explaining like, oh, you know, Snape and and us, we were fighting. He was always jealous of James's talent on the Quidditch field. Um, and I said that was a misdirect in my mind, not necessarily that Lupin is purposely doing it, but that Rowling is, I think, yeah. for us to think that, oh, it was this weird rivalry, like, um, between James and Snape, which it was, but it was about Lily completely, and, um, mm-hmm. that's obviously not revealed until much later, so I think it's interesting that, you know, to me now reading that, that seems purposely, like, placed as, like, okay, that's something reasonable, 
doesn't make a ton of sense, but we're not really going to dwell on it because that's not the point right now. But um, I feel that probably Rowling was actually put that in there specifically as like a reason for Snape to be mad at James. Yeah, and and we accept that as the reason for years until we get, you know, the the full picture of it. Um, And I think it is interesting because it brings up a couple points. One, Lupin was kind of observant because that seems to be the case that he Mm -hmm. was jealous. Um, But it's not just that he's talented, it's that he was with Lily. And that he was talented on the Quidditch team. Um, But the other thing that it brings up to me is that I guess Lupin didn't know about Snape and Lily having been friends or, like, still being friends because that... I mean, they do seem to still, like, talk to each other a lot, especially the first few years. Well, maybe he either doesn't think that's as important or maybe he's, like, he knows that's a big part of it, but he doesn't want to tell Harry about that right now, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess later on, like, Lupin and Harry become so close, you'd mm-hmm. think that it would have come up at some point. Right. Maybe. Especially when Snape becomes, like, the, the biggest villain in the story after right. um, killing Dumbledore. Right. You know? Yeah, so maybe, I don't know, I think that it's interesting. We'll have to see how that comes up later on. But maybe Lupin didn't know, you know, maybe it was this very private thing that only, you know, only James and Lily knew because it was, like, you know, he would kind of try to catch them or interrupt them and vice versa. Maybe. Just the little the couples. I don't know. I just think it's interesting, like, according to Snape's memories, like, he and Lily were very close. Right. Up until, like, about fifth year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just seems weird, like, Lupin and James were so close and James was spending a lot of time with Lily. Mm-hmm. So they were probably spending a lot of time with Lily and they never, like, saw her with Snape at any point. Right. Weird. Yeah, weird. Just, Kind of weird, yeah. Um, but it is a great misdirect because uh, we do like believe that, as I said, for the mm-hmm. next several books, and it makes sense. It it seems like a decent enough reason. Like we don't know again exactly what happened, but um, you know this is a kind of classic boarding school book kind of thing. Like one's really good at sports, and the other person's kind of jealous because they wish they could be the star. Yeah, yeah. It all makes it all makes sense. So it's just, I don't know. It's a good. It's a good line. And then there's also another kind of misdirect or just distraction about um, Prongs' animagus form. Harry asks Lupin what was Prongs, because that's the only animal they haven't mentioned specifically that they turn into. Um, well, it's not even that. He says, what was my dad's? Oh, what was my dad? But, like, he clearly has to know that Prongs is his dad's nickname at this point. Yeah, he's but, ruled it like, out. He but he doesn't know thought, what Prongs mean. Yeah, he hasn't figured out that Prongs is a stag. Right. Um I mean, I guess it could be, like, a moose or something. Do they have moose in England? I don't know. A <laughs> moose? Pro- probably not. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's just a cool way of something that, it, again, that seems like a very, like, non-important question anyway, um, in terms of, like, the context of things, but... Um, it's, it's also because Rowling wants the big reveal to happen with later. The Patronus, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. the Patronus in a big dramatic moment. Right. So she there's that reason why she doesn't want him to say it now, but um it's funny because that's that answer gets cut off because um does it because Snape appears or because No, not? because Hermione asks a question oh, Hermione, and it gets yeah. overshadowed. So like it, they're all interrupting each other, so that doesn't get answered, but it's it's interesting. And also, like, the Snape story becomes a little bit more complicated when when they talk about, again, the prank, which we've already discussed Mm -hmm. in detail, because Snape's perception of events and his belief that everybody was in on it except for him um, skews, like, his his, 
uh, understanding of James as a person mm-hmm. because he thinks of James as having just gotten cold feet about right. like but letting Snape die, but he actually like didn't know about it mm-hmm. and then like ran to to save him basically at risk to his own life, um, which is how Harry learns about it and and how that uh, is really the case is is uh, is part of why Snape doesn't like James mm-hmm. because he thought he was in on it and and that's um, the great ending to this chapter is. That Harry realizes that's why Snape doesn't like Lupin, and he says, mm-hmm. "So that's why he doesn't like you is because like he thought that you, the werewolf, were in on the prank." Mm-hmm. And then Snape pulls off the invisibility mm-hmm. cloak and says, "That's right." Yeah, and he points his wand directly at Lupin. Um, oh my god, what an amazing ending to the chapter! Incredible. I was thinking it was it's so good and like such a you know suspenseful like cinematic type thing, but. Um, I remember, like, how dramatic that was reading it, you know, how it is every time, but reading it the first time, I remember feeling that that was really dramatic and that, yeah. you know, it was a huge surprise. Nobody's expecting the same to appear at this moment. And and by this point, like, you, the reader, are so enraptured in Lupin's story. Yeah, you're just figuring this completely, out. Completely, like, distracted by from the fact that we see the door open and close. Right. Of the room. And no one is, like... Oh, maybe someone took the invisibility cloak that, oops, I left at the entrance to the Whopping yeah. Willow, I'm pretty sure. And uh, Lupin doesn't think about the fact that Harry has James's cloak. So he no, doesn't consider or they that. don't even just And Sirius probably it. doesn't know that Harry yeah. has it. Um, and so they don't even think about like, oh, that could be a person in an invisibility cloak. Instead, they're just content to be like, Ron or somebody is like, oh, is that a ghost? Because we're in the Shrieking Shack. Yeah. LOL, get it? And then Lupin's like, no, it was me that made those noises. And then everybody's like, okay, let's sit and listen to Papa Lupin tell us the story now. Right. And so Snape is there the whole time. Snape is there for the whole narrative. He's not there for anything that happened last chapter, like right. the confrontation and everybody in sort of a melee. But he is there for the whole mo- explanation. moony explanation of things. Right. Up until the prank on Snape. And then that's where he cuts in. Which is, I think that's, I, you know, it's pretty funny when you think about it. It's like him sitting there waiting for, like, the moment for yeah. where he, it's like his line. Yeah, it's it's so, it's funny. And, and I think part of the thing that's so brilliant about this scene is that we are, like, very much on their side at this point. We're, we're so into this story mm-hmm. and it makes so much sense for Scabbers to really have been the villain. It's a great twist. Yeah. Um. And and that when Snape shows up, you're you're kind of like, oh no, oh you're like, no, God, we everything's were like about just to go wrong. It. Yeah, we were about to get like a great resolution, this intense conflict, and then Snape shows up out of nowhere, and it's like, ugh. You know, I actually don't think I ever realized before you said that that Snape was there the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> and what's so fascinating about this to me is that even though Wormtail is clearly like supposed to be the bad guy in this book. In terms of the narrative, Snape is clearly the antagonist right. at the end of the book. Right. Which is so funny. Like, the actual servant of Lord Voldemort is here in the shack with yeah. us, this whole chapter. And the actual antagonist of the chapter is just a guy trying to do the right thing who has a grudge against them. Right. Right. <laughs> no, it's true. And I think that, you know, Pettigrew, we can talk obviously more about this next chapter and in the future, but I think that... You know, we, we're, like, disgusted by Pettigrew. I feel like that's the main yeah. um, emotion. But I don't... I would say, like, disdain, even. Yeah, I mean... Like, disgust plus Dane. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, definitely. <laughs> I You know, and we're like, oh, God, you know, he did it. He's such a coward. You know, we're not, we're not even scared of him. 
Um, yeah, no, he's not scary. And that's, I think that's, that's important. So powerful. It's, yeah. it's powerful in this chapter, but it becomes even more powerful later because, you know, even though it's like, okay, we get it that Pettigrew is his servant and we see this next book. I don't know. You sort of feel at the end of this book, like, oh, he's just going to go, like, you know, snivel away and, like, hide and whatever. Like, I, I sort of feel like, oh, he's too cowardly to, like, do anything. He has no power again. Yeah. But then we're, you know, we're hit with that next book. And I think that's, I don't know, just really interesting. And right away, too. And, like, yeah. one of the things I really love about um, the first chapter of Goblet of Fire, The Riddle House, is that it tells you right away that there are consequences from what happened last book. Mm-hmm. Voldemort's coming back. Like, yeah, it's we're, like, we're seeing oh, Voldem- shit, this like, is bad. We're seeing present-day Voldemort for the first time since he was on the back of Quirrell's head right. in Sorcerer's Stone. And we see Pettigrew specifically there, clearly important, and yeah, it's like, okay, this was huge. This moment, this is ba- basically, it's sort of like, this is why last book was written, because yeah, and, and that's it's... the only thing that moves the plot along in terms of a Voldemort story is... Right. Pettigrew escaping. And, and it's such a great device because if you were one of those people that was like, oh, I don't think Prisoner Eskimo was that impactful on the mm-hmm. overall narrative, then like you pick up Goblet of Fire and first chapter you're like, oh yeah, I guess it really was. Yeah, it's like, such everything's a different cool, now. I mean, we'll talk, you know, we're getting to the end, so we'll talk more about it towards the end of the book, but I think that this book is really, really good and really different because of because of this, because there's no major altercation with Voldemort, which is the only book really that there is, um, technically. And there's no, like, big dramatic scene where we're like, obviously the book was coming up to this, even though we know this is the climax reading it, it seems, even at the, when the book's all done, it seems inconsequential. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool that it's like, nope, this was like the butterfly. Like, this was the thing that, like, if a butterfly flapped its wings. Yeah, yeah. And now this is what happened. Right. Yeah, no, this is the this is the moment that sets it all off. But yeah, coming back to just this chapter, I mean, we've talked it to death already, but just so dramatic. Mm-hmm. I love the flair of that moment. And oh, oh, I had an, I had another point about this too. And my point was that like Snape is interjecting here like at a point in the narrative where we don't we still don't have any evidence that Pettigrew did anything wrong because they're still That's at true. Hogwarts in the narrative. So Snape hearing them tell this story could be thinking like, all right, I'm going to wait until they like reveal the evidence mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And then like, I'm going to intervene. But instead he, he hears them talking about something that essentially is just like so triggering for him. Yeah. That he's like, all right, I've had it. I'm going to arrest them both right now. And it reminds him about all the reasons why he hates them. And it confirms uh, like his belief and kind of hope that Sirius is the real killer because yeah. he wants to get him. And, and it's so personal because, like, Sirius literally tried to kill him. Yeah. And Sirius admits as much right there. Right. And then Snape is like, well, he could try to kill me. So, of course, he's guilty. Yeah. Like, that, that, of course. Pro- that proves it. He's just thinking, this is their bullshit that they're spinning. And, this, and I've got him. And I've got him. Like, yeah. right here. Like, I've got him right now. Yeah. So he goes for it. But it's, it's such, like, a personal, ego-driven thing. Right. Like, if he had been a really good investigator or, like fully in control of himself at the time, then I think he would have wanted to wait until they, like, finished their narrative or, like, something changed in the status quo, whether that was, like, them making an attack or mm. something else. Right. Because uh, it, it makes more sense if you get the whole picture first. Right. Absolutely. I think that's true. And um, I think that it's also important to remember, as we go into the next chapter, 
um, that at this moment, um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione also haven't heard the explanation, and they also yeah. don't have any evidence yet. So, again, kind of just, like, reminding ourselves how dumb Harry is in this chapter, because he hasn't heard any proof yet. They've just been talking, and then Snape said, like, burst in and is like, no, they're lying, and... Like, at this point, we have no reason not to believe Snape in general, besides that we don't like Snape. Kind of. I mean, we're, we are starting to come around on... Well, Lupin we know that he has a personal investment in this stuff. Yeah, we do. But it, but it's still, yeah, I think your point's well taken. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the way that the chapter ends, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we explore the dark side of Chapter 19, The Servant of Lord Voldemort. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.